Welcome to Dream Makers, candid conversations with women that will change the way that you see success, purpose, and what it takes to bridge the two. I'm Neha Sampat, a three-time tech founder and CEO with a focus on companies that are places to dream big, build up, and be a good human. I'm CEO of Content Stack and also a certified sommelier. So yes, we drink wine here. I'm joined by Brianna Seo, founder and CEO of Seeker. Seeker is an app that makes outdoor travel easier, safer, and more connected. Today, we're going to talk about how we make dreams a reality, whether that's for yourself or for others, and also life on the road. So let's get started. Hi, Brianne. Hi, Neha. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. I'm so happy you're here, and it's so cool what you do. So you run an app for campers, outdoor enthusiasts, self-proclaimed nomads. How does this appeal to you? Does that describe your life as well? Yeah, for sure. So I built the company because I am myself a nomad. My wife and I travel about six months out of the year in our rigs, which are generally camper vans. And we've been doing that since 2017. So I actually built this company to solve a problem that I was having. And it just so happens to be that over 50% of the country also have the same problem. And that is, it's difficult to find camping places. Absolutely. So I'm excited to learn more about that. I'm going to quickly introduce this wine that I shipped to you and that I also have a bottle of. It's a 2017 Thibault Ligère Bel Air. The region is, of course, Burgundy, which is where Pinot Noir originated in France. And we're having it in the afternoon, which is helpful because this is kind of a light-bodied, not a super heavy-bodied wine, which is nice. We were just talking about that before we started. So cheers to you, Brianne. Thank you for being on. Cheers. I love the wines from this region because they're super approachable. Like I mentioned, kind of light bodied. So you can drink them without food if you must, which is what we're doing today. But they also go with a lot of foods. They actually can hold up well to some like light meats, like sometimes, sometimes even like a lamb or like a roasted fish. I'm a vegetarian. I usually think about the cheeses I would pair it with or like something mushroomy or kind of cheesy mushroomy, kind of uh, creamy which it, because of the acidity in it, it'll cut through some of that salt really well and, um, and complement it. But I actually really love that we're able to just enjoy it without the food and still, um, still have something beautiful and lush. Cool. Yeah, it's delicious. I am not a wine connoisseur or anything like that. So I was trying to copy the way that you were drinking it, but it's delicious. I like it a lot. <laughs> yeah. So I typically will like start with the nose. So just kind of put your nose into it and see what you get from, from just like the aromas. And that typically will inform what you're going to get on the palate. And so if we start there, it's got like almost like a spicy, dusty rose thing going. And like the violets do stand out to me. But like the, the spiciness is almost like a clove. Like if you put cloves and flowers together, like a poopery <laughs> bouquet, mm. that's kind of what I get on this one on the nose. And the cool thing, so this is actually named after the winemaker, Thibault, who kind of inherited the winery because most of these wineries in that region are, you know, in the family for multiple generations. So this has been in the family for over 250 years. And when he was in his late teens through his early 20s, he actually left to go and try to do a bunch of other things. Like he, he was learning about uh, technology related to wine, built an internet company related to it, trying to get high-end wines in the hands of people. He spent some time in Paris, 
but the vines drew him back. And at 26 years old, he took over and um, is now still running the winery. So pretty cool mm. to have that in the family. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't mind that. <laughs> okay. And like, can you imagine having a van on a vineyard like that? That's a, That seems like a good dream. So speaking of which, <laughs> let's go back to the conversation. So when you decided to do this and, and, you know, you decided that there's a hole that needs to be filled, what do you think was missing from outdoor travel? So I think, do you go camping yourself? I haven't for a really long time. I used to be a Girl Scout. So I liked okay. it as a kid, but I kind of have missed out. I've talked about having a van and like going through Europe. And I've actually thought about like visiting vineyards through a van life situation. And so I'm super excited and passionate about it, but I haven't had a chance in my adult life. Yeah. So uh, the vineyard thing is actually on our roadmap, but I, I'll I'll get to that later. So basically with the camping experience, over 50% of Americans go camping. The problem is that you basically go to like the campsite that you know about that is within an hour or so of where you live or the one that your friend told you about. It is very difficult to find a campground that is available. It's basically like like hotels were in the 80s and 90s where they didn't have good websites, super archaic. You try to call um, and and that's the camping industry. And it's such a large industry and there's so much inventory for camping that this should not be a problem. And finally, the outdoor recreation industry is is kind of getting smart to technology and opening up to technology. So we're instead of having to use like Google and your phone and 20 different apps, we're creating an, an all-in-one resource like the Expedia and Airbnb of the outdoors. You say it's a large industry. What what do you think is the market size for this? So outdoor recreation it, itself makes up 2.2% of GDP. It's a gigantic industry. Yeah, totally overlooked. The reason it's been overlooked is because the the federal government recently did its first economic impact report on outdoor recreation, and that was their finding. So you think about like 63% of Americans go camping, not even 63% of Americans own their own home, and they're camping two or more times a year. And And people who camp generally do it their entire lives. It's not like a once a year thing. There are some people who do it like once in a very long while, but generally it's part of someone's lifestyle. And I imagine, I mean, I've seen articles recently, today, the most recently today in the New York Times about how the pandemic had an impact on how much people were relying on camping as, as their source of recreation. What impact did you see over the last 15 months or so? It's been, it's been huge. You know, the first month of the pandemic, we were all worried, like everyone, everyone was very unsure of how it was going to impact anything. But after the first uh, 45 days, we started realizing like, wow, outdoor travel and camping, people saw it as really the only way that they could continue to travel with their families and get out in a safe way. Because you're out in nature, you're outdoors, you're generally not right up next to somebody. Um, so it had a really, really positive impact on us. We're up 200% in the past six months. So that's so. amazing. So Brian, do you consider yourself a dream maker? Yeah, for sure. Actually. So one of the reasons that I started getting into business, cause I, I was an academic 
before I taught at San Diego State. And my wife and I bought a van because we, we were both teachers and we had summers to travel. So we, we bought a van, we started going around and, and we realized that people were constantly saying, you're living my dream. And part of me is like, heck yeah, that's, that's great. Like I have a cool life. But the other part is like, that is sad. Like I want more people to live their own dream. So that's really becoming, being a dream maker, like helping other people achieve their dream was the impetus behind me becoming an entrepreneur. That is right in line with what we expect dream makers to do. I know that this is not your first entrepreneurial venture. You've clearly had a thread of, of running businesses throughout your journey. Can you tell us a little bit about your previous then manufacturing and rental ventures? Yeah. So really, once we bought a van, I jumped in full force, just was so passionate about the lifestyle and making it more accessible to more people. So the first thing I did was with my family, we ended up building a camper van conversion business where we would take somebody's van and we would convert it into a camper, customized camper. And we started really with $15,000 in our bank account, like all, all of our savings in 2017, and then turned that into a million dollars in revenue in the first 12 months. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And and we also, at the same time, built a rental fleet. We had a fleet of about 15 vans. And we actually decided to close our doors right before the pandemic, which is good and bad. The reason we closed our doors was because it really took us away from the thing that we love the most. So, which was traveling. We were We were forced to like change our entire lifestyle to sacrifice everything so that we could help other people live the lifestyle that we wanted to live. So it was kind of counterintuitive, uh, but it was a great business. So we decided to close our doors right before the pandemic. Since then, the sales of camper vans is, has just skyrocketed. Like you can't find one. They're impossible to find. But at the same time, lumber tripled. So the costs went up. It's a good and bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. Did you already know about building and, and like fixing vans? And did you just learn all of that as a result of your passion for it? <laughs> yeah. So we had a partner that focused on the R&D and the building and the manufacturing. And I focused on the business and the marketing. So we really had two different skill sets that were able to come together to build a company. I'm always so impressed when people pursue their passions to, to try to turn it into a business. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it actually takes you away from what you love, which is an interesting journey to go through in and of itself. I've kind of, I kind of have gone through that with my wine journey because I have a passion for wine, but I, I've learned that I prefer it as a hobby over something commercial because it kind of takes me away from like just being able to enjoy it and not have to be stressed about it. And I, I like to learn about it, but I like to do it at my pace and when I have the time. And so I have a lot of respect for trying things that, you know, kind of follow your passion. I think that I am very lucky in that my ventures have been around something that I'm super passionate about. And that doesn't work for all people. But for me, that is very important. Like I have to be passionate about what I'm doing. That's just my lifestyle. Even when I was in academia, I taught subjects that I was super passionate about. And when you do that, you're able to lead people in a way that is authentic and it 
connects with them because it connects with you. In general, what has entrepreneurship taught you about yourself? (laughs) Entrepreneurship has taught me that I am willing to sacrifice too much to achieve the future that I see. And what I've been learning over the past couple of years, and particularly over the past year, as I've been aware of how much I've been sacrificing, is that you don't actually have to sacrifice your happiness or your life or the things that you love and the life that you love to achieve the things that you think you can achieve. My view as a person is that I can achieve anything I want to. Like, I can do anything I want to do as long as I set my mind to it. And having a high quality of life while I'm also scaling multiple businesses or or a gigantic business is also one of those things that I can choose to be happy doing. I don't it doesn't have to be all sacrifice. So, I think that it's this this lesson of my drive and my like determination to achieve success. I also need to have that for my personal life and my personal well-being and my family. Balance is really hard to achieve as an entrepreneur and we do sacrifice a lot whether we try to balance and try to make room for other things. But I think it's incredible when you can figure out the right balance between your work life and your home life and everything else that you're passionate about and care about. So kudos to you for learning that and like kind of, you know, figuring out a way to make it work. Building a business does take sacrifice. I'm not saying like you don't sacrifice because you will sacrifice. It's just the extent to how much. And one of the things that I've learned is that I am really driven to like, I think my mission in life is to help people self-actualize. Because I know what it's like to be a person who feels like I don't have opportunity and that I can work as hard as I want, but I'm, I'm not getting anywhere. And it's like feeling suppressed. So everything that I'm doing with Seeker, like at the core of it, the fact that my business is meant to help people improve their quality of life through like outdoor travel or adventure, like that is my mission in life. It's to help people self-actualize their potential. And I think that being part of my core mission will help me build amazing companies and amazing teams and amazing businesses because it's from a place of real authentic like desire to change the world for for the better. That's a beautiful thing and I love that everything you're doing is so purpose driven. <laughs> I'm a little bit jealous. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what you're doing too with this this podcast. I mean, it's not like, you know, even if the thing you do for your business isn't necessarily to help people go on an adventure, right? Like you are still helping people self-actualize by solving the problems, by making technology easier for people to use. So like, it's just a different way that you are helping the world and you're helping people self-actualize. But at the core, you still have this podcast. You, you like are supporting women and underrepresented founders. Like it's the same thing. Yeah. But it really does bring home what you said at the very beginning, which is you were doing this for yourself and people were kind of had that like envy and 
you decided to turn that around and make it available to the masses, which I think is one of the coolest things I've ever heard. Super cool. Thank you. I feel like we should toast again to that because <laughs> you got me like almost teary. Cheers to you. <laughs> Cheers. That's cool. So you're currently raising capital for Seeker. And as you know, and I know, less than 3% of all venture capital goes to women-led companies. So I'm curious what your experience has been so far kind of working towards raising capital, if you've got any stories or insights that you can share with our listeners. Yeah. So I think that not only are we women, but we're women of color. And like for myself, I'm also a masculine presenting woman of color. So like I have, I have these layers, these intersections of, of biases that, that I have to deal with oftentimes that are unconscious, like people aren't conscious about them, which is part of the problem. Like you have to be conscious about your biases. So I think that it's been a long journey of learning. And I sometimes forget how difficult the first step is because you're coming in as as a new founder, you're coming into a world that you have no idea about. It it is a completely different world that you get opened up to. So I think my first step or my first recommendation is to find an accelerator program or an incubator program, like go through some programming to help teach you about how to build and scale a business and how fundraising works. Because I was a communication professor prior to being a founder. I'd never raised venture capital. I had bootstrapped businesses, but that it's not the same thing. And education is absolutely key. A- education and network, but particularly education. And unfortunately, a lot of the education that women and people of color will hear is from a perspective of of a, a white man. And not that white men are, are wrong, but their experience in fundraising is vastly different. And a lot of the how-tos and the what to do and the processes and what to say, it doesn't apply to me or to Neha. Um, it, like, it doesn't apply in the same way. So Get advice and surround yourself with at least some people who are similar to you, who can teach you and mentor you from your perspective. It's really, really good advice. If you think about like the majority of entrepreneurs that get funding, they come out of ecosystems that have already taught that, right? It's like the Stanford grads and the Harvard grads and the Cambridge grads and nothing, there's nothing against them. They've worked really hard to get to where they are, but the relatability isn't there for people that haven't gone through those paths. And these types of programs really do open it up to a wider audience. And I think going back to what we were talking about earlier, access, which I think is education from this perspective, and then the relatability, which is talking to people that have gone through it before that kind of feel more like them or have relatability to them or come from different backgrounds or come from places where they started with nothing. Like it just makes such a big difference because you you start to see that it's available to you and that you can get there too. Yeah, totally. Do you have the same experience? I'm, I'm curious, Neha, if you have the same experience where the advice that you get, you kind of have to manipulate a little bit to make work for you. Sometimes. And, and it's, I feel like, especially at the earlier stages, that was even more true And like you said, you know, if you haven't been exposed to it, you don't really know how venture capital works. Like you can read a book, but that's not the same as having access to like a whole community of people that have been through it that you can just bounce ideas off of and not look foolish in front of. 
And that's what I think a lot of, especially younger entrepreneurs and often females have a hard time asking the questions because they don't want to look foolish or because they're facing this imposter syndrome challenge. And that's not something that you see as often with the Stanford grad, right? (laughs) And so it's just like understanding that entrepreneurs can look different and be different and still build high value companies. And like the more that we do and the further we take our businesses, the more relatability we can get back to the younger generation. My number one piece of advice for underrepresented founders is to find your champions. Like the only reason I was able to make it through the pre-seed and, you know, there's so many hurdles that you come across that are just devastating that could put anyone out. Like why do this to yourself? And there's like no shortage of people who say no and who doubt what you're building and don't believe in you. But if you have your champions, people who know you, who really believe in what you're doing, who have been through it before, that for me is the thing that got me to where I am now. And we're still, you know, a seed stage company, but we're about to raise a a very decent sized seed, seed round. And we have a community of people, mentors, investors around us that are just so supportive and that we can go to anytime. That's amazing. And it's so true, right? Like the resilience it takes to be a founder. And then not only that, you add in the layers that we we add to not just being a, a white male founder, but everything else that comes with being who we are authentically us. And between the the rejections and the hurdles and the repositioning and all of that. And also the lack of relatability a lot of the time, because there aren't a lot of people that look like us that have had the success that we're trying to go and achieve. It definitely makes it harder, but I think that there's something really special about the resilience that we build. And I think it's really important that for you and me and others that are like us to tell those stories so that others that look at us can have that relatability and know that that access can be there. So good for you. And thank you for what you do in terms of mentoring others and and kind of sharing your stories, because it's, it's really important that we do spend the time to do that as in our crazy, busy lives. Yeah, it is. And, and I do have another piece of advice, I guess. And that is like, now there are so many funds that are focused on underrepresented founders. Like we have Backstage, Gangels, Stella, Angels, Ad Astra Ventures. Like there are so many funds that really believe in underestimated people and it, not just believe in them, but see them as an untapped like potential. Yeah, untapped potential. So, so we have chances all over the place. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think what's happened in the last year and a half is also sort of leveling of the playing field because I don't know about you, but I was raising my series B from sitting at home and, you know, I didn't meet any of my investors in person during the whole process. It was all through Zoom from Austin, Texas. And my my newest investors that came on board are in Toronto, Canada. And We've never met in person, but we've had a lot of time working through all of the details over Zoom. And what I think is really fascinating about that is it opens up the doors to any entrepreneur anywhere. And going back to your point about untapped opportunity 
and untapped just talent, right? It, it can be somebody sitting in a remote place in the US or any other country in the world that now has access to global capital. And I think that's a really cool and interesting trend that's come out of what we've been through in the last year and a half. So I'm gonna to move to kind of the next section, which is just thinking about success. I like to ask guests what they think their definition of success is. So let me start with that. How would you define it for you as a person? Then let's talk about how you define success also for Seeker. So for me as a person, success really revolves around my ability to choose and to have the impact that I want to have on the world. And I came from a family that was not in a very good financial position. Like we struggled a lot. So I understand the value that like capital and financial success is, is inherently tied to my definition of success because it gives me the ability to choose when and where I want to do something. Absolutely. And what do you think the success will be for Seeker? And kind of how do you think about that? What's next for you and Seeker in general? So Seeker, our, our vision is to be synonymous with the outdoors. Currently, there isn't a company that, that really is the gateway to the outdoors. And that's what we're building. Um, and we have a really cool opportunity right now to become that. Awesome. So right now you're sitting in San Diego. <laughs> I'm curious when you're hitting the road again and where you're going to head. So my next trip is actually this weekend. I'm going to Vegas, not specifically for camping, but I will be taking my van. And it's because my sister is a boxer and she has her second world title fight in Vegas. So I'll be going there. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Okay. I'm going to move into rapid fire and ask you a few questions. Just the first thing that comes to mind. And it's the same four questions that I always ask my guests at the end of every episode. The first is, what's your wake up song? I wake up to Anne Marie on acoustic. So like anything acoustic live with Anne Marie, I'll turn on. If your 19 year old you asked you today what they should read or what they should listen to, what would you say? All right. So this might sound cliche, but I'm going to say the four hour work week and not because of the four hour concept, but because of the value that is the value of your time that he emphasizes, like understanding the value of your time and how you can leverage your skills or outsource things that you you don't necessarily need to, to do. I think that it gave me more power to control or to say no or to pass things off, to have control over my decisions and of what I do with my time. Yeah, absolutely. And even just the idea of it doesn't have to be the same way for everyone. You don't have to work a 40-hour regular nine-to-five job to be successful. And I think that's what Tim Ferriss kind of opened up our minds to with that book. Yeah. Can you recommend a wine? <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the, how do you say this? <laughs> exactly. Thibault Liget Belair. Yes, that one. The Frenchy one. Yeah. I highly recommend this one. I'm really glad you liked it. I think it's a beautiful wine. And I actually have not had this before. So because of you, I was able to open something really beautiful. So heck yeah. All right. So we together recommend this wine. And finally, last question for you. What should our listeners do tomorrow to help them become dream makers? Mm. So I think that very few people do this, but it's so simple and so powerful. 
And that is to reflect on and write down what you really want. Like, what is it that you want? Not that you feel like you're supposed to do or where you're supposed to be, but like, where do you want to be? And what do you want to do? And what kind of life do you really want to have? And that practice is extremely powerful because oftentimes it doesn't align with what society tells us we should, we should be doing. Absolutely. I had a professor in my MBA program that used to say, never underestimate the power of clearly written expectations with a, a huge emphasis on written. And it's something that stuck with me because there's something about when you write something down there's a higher likelihood that it's going to manifest into reality. And I think that's really good advice for our future dream makers. Brianne, thank you so much for all of your great words and for what you're doing and for the giving back that you do to the community that is the future of entrepreneurship. And I wish you all the best of luck with your fundraising journey. I think you're going to do awesome. It was so nice to meet you and have you on the show. Thank you, Neha. It was great to be here. And thanks for the wine. Thanks so much for listening to the Dream Makers podcast. You can reach out to me, Neha Sampat, on Twitter at NehaSF, that's N-E-H-A-S-F, with your comments, suggestions, your favorite wake-up song, wine, or Dream Maker Woman to know. Please also leave a review and subscribe to Dream Makers wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, keep dreaming big, building up, and being a good human. 